this week's TribCast, we'll talk about a major Tribune investigation into coal cleanups in Texas, state leaders' role in a North Texas child custody case, a mass exodus from the Legislative Budget Board, and the latest on the House Speaker. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Raise Your Hand Texas is strengthening public education for the future because the future of Texas is in our public schools. More at raiseyourhandtexas.org. And the Hot Luck Festival, helmed by Aaron Franklin with food, events galore, and nightly live music. Hot Luck has something for everyone. Come Memorial Day weekend, join us. The whole enchilada passes are now on sale at hotluckfest.com. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, October 30th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by Associate Editor Kia Collier. Hello. Hello. By reporter Emma Platoff. Hi there. By Associate Editor, all the Associate Editors, Edgar Walters. Hello. And in a moment, uh, reporter Cassie Pollock will be joining us on the stage. Uh, as always, we will take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay, uh, let's start with you, Kia, uh, and with a months-long investigation you've been working on with the environmental news site Grist. Um, your investigation found that state regulators have lent a serious hand to struggling coal companies that are facing millions of dollars in required land restoration costs. Uh, tell us, uh, basically, how you stumbled on this story and the particular tale of the San Miguel uh, <laughs> company, the San Miguel mine. Uh, I might start by explaining what coal reclamation is, sure, coal absolutely. mine reclamation. Um, I didn't know anything about it. Um, so longstanding state and federal regulations require coal mine companies, once they abandon excavated land, to restore it, to you know fill in these big mine pits, to plant grass, level out the land, etc. They're supposed to clean up the land um, to the state that they found it in when they started mining. In Texas, this is rural areas, mainly means pasture land. Um, and our biggest finding was that um, the Railroad Commission is allowing them to clean land up for industrial commercial use rather than pasture land. Uh, interesting. And the Railroad Commission for the uninitiated doesn't oversee railroads in Texas? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. It oversees oil and gas um, and, and the coal industry. Mm -hmm. um, so there are different um, cleanup standards for land, like I said, pasture land, industrial commercial. Um, IC use has much lower cleanup standards. Hmm. They're not required to monitor land for a long time. They're not required to test soil for toxic materials. Um, so we did an analysis um, of state data that shows the Railroad Commission is increasingly approving um, these requests for, for IC. And so before we talk about the San Miguel uh, case here, what are, I mean, are there risks to humans if land isn't restored to the state that it was before? Yeah, so... There are kind of two different things at play here. A lot of coal mines are right next to coal-fired coal power plants. Mm -hmm. They generate a lot of coal ash, which contains toxic heavy metals. They often use that coal ash, bury it in these mine pits, and then cover it over. Um, coal ash is um, basically it has been entirely unregulated until the Obama administration. They identified it as, you know, this is a big issue that we need to deal with. They proposed a coal ash regulation. So that's one thing. Um, it can leach into groundwater. Um, it's been proven to leach into groundwater. They're often not required to line these coal ash disposal pits. Um, and then, you know, in mines where um, there isn't a power plant involved, um, 
they're just like toxins in coal and lignite, which is a low-grade form of coal. Uh, most of the mining in Texas is lignite. Um, and when those toxins come to the earth and, or, you know, to the surface and are exposed to air and water, they can turn into acid and toxic forming materials. And if that gets in soil and it gets kicked up as dust and people breathe it, it can be super hazardous. So you had one pretty incredible example of this case that you're telling us about, and that's the San Miguel mine. Tell us uh, what you learned in that case. Yeah, I'll go back and answer. So in that main story, I'll go back and answer one of your previous questions I didn't ask, which is how this story um, kicked off. And um, we had a lot of really brave whistleblowers who came forward. Um, The main thing, you know, it was kind of hard to establish that the state was doing this. We needed, you know, a lot of assistance. They were telling us these things. It was hard to track down. Um, But then we found out that the Surface Mining and Reclamation Division at the Railroad Commission had fired two top officials, essentially for being too industry friendly. Um, So we requested HR files. Um, They didn't give us a lot of them, citing attorney-client privilege. Um, But the ones we did get um, explained that an employee had um, basically complained to HR and said, we're getting, we're being retaliated against for doing our jobs. Um, and it's for those of us who express opinions adverse to industry. Um, so these two guys left and, you know, that was a huge finding because Railroad Commission is notoriously industry friendly. They're pretty openly industry friendly. They, you know, say we want to make it as, as easy as we can for industry to get permits, et cetera. So we were discussing for a while, do we just do a story on that? You know, it's a huge deal. But instead we decided to, I guess, kind of figure out the damage left in their in their wake. And the San Miguel example, um, so it's the South Texas ranching family um, that had leased um, uh, their a lot of their ranch for lignite mining to San Miguel Electric Cooperative. Um, and uh, basically they're complaining that they're not um, cleaning up the land um, as so quickly. So the mining, the work is done, basically, and they're expressing that the land should have been cleaned up and has exactly. not Exactly, yeah. They stopped mining on the Peeler Ranch 15 years ago and have not reclaimed all the land. So, one, they're claiming that it's taken too long. Um, state and federal regulations don't lay out a specific timeline. They just say, like, you should do it as expeditiously as possible, which is obviously way up, you know, very um, much up for interpretation. Um, And then also they're arguing that San Miguel is um, destroying, not only not cleaning up the land, but further kind of degrading it. Um, And that the Railroad Commission has um, actively ignored um, their concerns and not only ignored them, but, you know, assisted San Miguel, um, not, you know, penalizing them for violations. Um, And then, you know, yeah, actively kind of assisting them in sidestepping their cleanup responsibilities. One of the guys who was fired um, continued to golf with the San Miguel executive. You know, it was just like a very cozy relationship. And so how do, um, quickly, how does San Miguel and the Railroad Commission respond to these allegations? Railroad Commission chose not to really say anything, um, citing personnel issues. They kind of always say, you know, just send you a line with their mission statement saying, you know, we're committed to protecting the land and we think we do a fine job of regulating industry. Um, San Miguel uh, was pretty defiant. Um, They're tied up in in a lawsuit with the Peeler family, so they have a lot at stake. Um, they're a nonprofit. They have very kind of slim margins. And the overarching, you know, thing about this is that the coal industry is struggling um, despite efforts by the Trump administration to revive it. It's um, 
coal plants keep closing. Um, there's really cheap and abundant natural gas um, with the shale revolution um, and, a, you know, flourishing renewable energy industry. Um, and so they're, you know, they're concerned about their bottom lines and it costs millions of dollars to clean up um, these coal mines. So it's kind of an, not an, I don't want to say an obvious way to cut costs, but, you know, they are trying to, to minimize their costs. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much, Kia. Uh, under the weather, we appreciate you joining us. Yeah, of course. Uh, we're going to bring Cassie <laughs> up here uh, in just a moment. Uh, and while we do, uh, Emma, I want to talk to you about a story you worked on late last week, uh, an unusual case where a uh, North Texas child custody battle spurred the involvement of some of the state's top officials. Uh, what happened there? So this is a disagreement, like you said, between a divorced couple in the Dallas area. Uh, and in particular, as they fight this kind of ongoing custody battle, they disagree on what the course of action should be for one of their children. Um, they disagree on the child's gender identity. This is a seven-year-old. The mother has been supportive of the child's transition. The father disagrees with it. Um, and so basically what we happened, what we saw happen last week was for this sort of bitter custody dispute to take on the full force of culture wars in Texas with top state officials, including the governor, the lieutenant governor, and the Texas attorney general, all kind of weighing in um, mostly on the, on the father's side. And in fact, ordering an investigation into this family as to whether any child abuse has occurred um, through the process of gender transition for this kid. Um, important to note, I think, just because there's a lot of misinformation on this point, this child is seven, so there's no medical intervention contemplated at all by any parties at this stage. Despite the despite the father sort of promoting in blog posts and otherwise that there might be medical intervention at this early stage, there is none. There, there is no medical intervention at this stage. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the father is correct that if you grow up as a transgender child, then, you know, during puberty, which is years down the line for the kid in this case, you might start, you know, with the consultation of a doctor. The mother in this case is a pediatrician, but they're working with other physicians. You might start taking puberty blockers much further down the line. Some transgender individuals, of course, pursue surgery, but none of that is happening at this, um, at this young age. Got it. And so, um, I mean, how rare is it to have st top statewide elected officials intervening in any kind of custody case? I can't remember any other examples. Uh, no one I've spoken to could. It is it is kind of unusual, I think, for that reason. To I, I mean, it's hard to imagine another issue that would have sort of spurred top Texas Republicans to inter intervene in any custody battle, right? Especially... Um, you know, including by issuing out statements that include the name of this seven-year-old. Right. I mean, that was really stunning to me because in a, particularly in a custody fight, but anything involving a child's health care or well-being or, you know, child welfare, it's like unheard of to reveal the child's name in a public setting. And then you had, you know, top elected officials for the state doing it. Yeah. And ordering investigations into this family, which I think, uh, you know, in conversations I've been having with families who have trans children, they're sort of, they're afraid of, about what this means it, for this individual family, of course, but I think they're wondering whether this has kind of become a public policy debate. You saw a number of Republican lawmakers in the Texas House kind of vow last week that the first bills they file in some cases in 2021 when the legislature next reconvenes will be on this issue to, for example, prohibit the use of puberty blockers um, or to you know, classify assisting a child with the gender transition as child abuse. And so a lot of parents of trans children across the state are wondering, is this an effort by top Texas Republicans to sort of reclassify these decisions that they think, you know, they're doing what they think is best for their children, of course, and 
they're wondering now whether the state wants to criminalize that behavior. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are one of these parents, the fact that a state, a top state official or the governor can basically demand a child welfare investigation into your child or into your parenting is like pretty terrifying. I mean, <laughs> obviously, we've heard, there have been stories for years about families that have been getting tangled up sort of uh, improperly in child welfare right. investigations, which can bankrupt you, which can, you know. And I actually have a question about the extent to which there is the authority to order a child protective services investigation. My impression from, um, you know, reporting on the agency is that in general, in order to investigate, you know, the CPS is required to investigate credible allegations of child abuse. Um, but in order to meet the threshold of an allegation being credible, you kind of have to have like some firsthand knowledge of something, you know, usually it's like maybe a teacher is seeing a kid with some bruises or, you know, a family member or, or a doctor who has seen the kid raises some kind of suspicion. I think a Texas politician reading a conservative blog post about a case doesn't necessarily reach that threshold. And so I actually think that there's an open question about can CPS investigate the case or, or are they just going to have to... Even? I mean, I'm sure the dad has lodged, you know, complaints against the mom. This sounds like a pretty toxic situation. And I think, but I think that the previous allegations have already been investigated, mm-hmm. is my impression. There has been a previous investigation in this case. And, um, you know, as Edgar knows, this this is a state child welfare agency. They're not really able to comment on any former investigations. But what we can clearly conclude is that um, after a previous investigation, this the kids were not taken from this mother. Mm, interesting. And you said kids. There's multiple kids in this circumstance. Yes. Um, the youngest, they're, they're two seven-year-old twins, but the focus has been, of course, on one of them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, the, this sort of obviously brings up all uh, the those of us who lived through the bathroom bill fight. This feels very similar. But it seems like this kind of rhetoric has been toned down in recent months or toned down since the sort of uh, bruising 2018 election cycle where a lot of Republicans... Uh, lost their jobs, and there was this sort of sense that, you know, maybe some of it was the sort of social uh, issue rhetoric. Why are we seeing this come back around now, and how does this play in 2020? Because it seems like this is not, a, should not be a popular strain in 2020 if your aim is to hang on to Republican seats. Well, I mean, so, I'll yeah. just weigh in here if you don't mind. I thought Ross put it best in his column, which is, frankly, if you've got other stuff to worry about, maybe, you know, an upcoming election in 2020 that seems potentially, you know, promising for Democrats. Uh, you've got a scandal erupting amid your own party. Um, social issues, I think, are kind of have been kind of the safest like punching bag and maybe it's a cynical view but it seems like oh here's something we can talk about we can talk about transgender kids and we can talk about homelessness on another Mm -hmm. issue i mean i think there's a strategic lens to view all this in and that is let's take the conversation to a turf where we know our base will respond positively to it Mm -hmm. right Uh, All right, well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors. Uh, Lone Star College. Learn why over 99,000 students chose Lone Star College for affordable access to high-quality higher ed. Nationally recognized, globally connected, locally focused. More at lonestar.edu. And Austin Parks and Recreation. Austin's rich history includes iconic and historic places that make our city like no other. Explore Austin Parks today. For more, visit austintexas.gov slash historicatxparks. Uh, Okay, Edgar, you had a really incredible story on Tuesday about the Legislative Budget Board, which is this nonpartisan entity in the legislature that is finding itself um, 
uh, under the political gun. Uh, for starters, um, tell us what the LBB is and what it does. And this is wonky, but it matters. It is, um, and it does matter. And I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Thanks. I, I'm here for you. Um, They're glad too. I'm yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, what I like to say is if you have never heard of the LBB, it's probably because historically they've been doing the job that they are supposed to be doing, which is generally speaking, keeping their heads down uh, it, and running the numbers. They basically write the first draft of the state budget. They're, they are a legislative agency, so they report to the House Speaker and the Lieutenant Governor. And jointly. Jointly, mm -hmm. which is important. Mm -hmm. um, and they basically are the legislature's ability to keep tabs on state agencies and say, hey, you know what? The lawmakers um, told you guys this is how much money you have to spend and this is what you need to spend it on and we're going to make sure that that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, they have a few other roles. They monitor like government's private contracts with private businesses to make sure that basically the state is getting the most bang for its buck when it outsources um, you know, government services. Uh, they kind of, they're the number crunchers and they're the ones keeping tabs uh, on basically how the wheels keep turning on state government. You affectionately called them nerds in the story that you wrote. I thought that was nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's not in dispute. <laughs> uh, not in dispute. Right. We could say the same for us. Uh, all right, so what is happening to these nerds? Um, well, basically, they are leaving the agency really in bulk. Um, and th there's a couple things going on. Uh, basically, it's a jointly run uh, agency or, or a board... There's a jointly run board that oversees the agency, and you've got the Texas House and the Texas Senate, and they haven't really gotten along all that well on a number of fronts over the years, and this is really a key divisive issue between them. The lieutenant governor basically sees the staff of the LBB, even though he oversees them, he sees them as kind of like liberal, unelected bureaucrats who have like too much say over government. Hmm. Um, and, you know, fairly or un unfairly, he has really kind of openly said, I mean, in the, once our story published, he issued a statement basically saying, we think most of these people are too liberal and aren't taking the state in the wrong direction. Um, the house has been, uh, historically a bigger defender of the legislative budget board. Um, and basically, you know, I interviewed tons of house lawmakers who said, we rely on these experts to give us nonpartisan information that help us make the decisions. Um, and, but because the agency is jointly run, um, or jointly overseen, Dan Patrick has kind of effectively wielded this veto power over any decision-making that, that the agency might have. So when their, execu their past executive director stepped down a year ago, um, Patrick basically said, I don't think we need to fill this position. Um, or, it, or at the very least, we, I haven't found somebody right who person. I think yeah. should take this position. And since then has kind of done everything in his power to prevent them from being able to hire anyone. The Senate has not funded the agency. The agency actually gets its funding from partially from a transfer from the Senate and a transfer from the House. The House has made that transfer. The Senate has said, we're not going to do it. Wow. Um, and so how long has it been without an executive director? Uh, a, a, a year as of Thursday, I think. All right. Um, 
and they've lost their there there's four sort of sub director assistant director positions all of those are very soon to be vacant wow. um, they've lost um, over a quarter of their staff in the past years it's just a classic brain drain situation but the feeling inside the agency is our leadership doesn't support us do we have a future like I, as an employee, like, does right. it, do I have a future here? Right. If my boss didn't want me to exist or my, my department to exist, you know, why do I keep hanging on? Right. And so because of that, I think <laughs> we can expect the turnover to get only worse. So uh, Julie asks on social media, Patrick claims he's getting rid of bias by getting the LBB, but exactly how will having less oversight, one that is not partisan from what it seems, be better for Texas and protect taxpayers? Well, I mean, I guess I think that's, that's the that's, whole reason you wrote the story, right? I, I, yeah, I mean, I think those are all extremely valid questions. Um, I think it is interesting that an agency that Dan Patrick has basically 50% control over, kind of by proxy, the mm -hmm. Senate at least has 50% control over, is interesting for somebody in that position to say, I have no confidence in this agency. Like, why not just hire an executive director who does your bidding? I, you know, that's a question. I, I guess there just has not been any sort of agreement between the House and Senate, and they just, yeah. I mean, so, but I think the question really gets at the question of motive. Mm -hmm. Like, why would Dan Patrick do this? And that was a question that came up in my reporting. And, and the answer that I got was that his vision, as he has articulated to other people at the Capitol, is if we let the LBB die, we can replace it with whatever we want. And one option would be we could have a House budget office and we could have a Senate budget office. Mm -hmm. And if there's a Senate budget office, the Lieutenant Governor, in this case, Dan Patrick gets to pick who runs it, what reports they publish. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of control that you directly have over the agency as opposed to kind of having to share it with the House, which who knows, maybe there'll be a Democratic House speaker in the mm -hmm. future. Um, Interesting. So basically it uh, removes the need to compromise. Kind of, yeah. And, now, hmm. ultimately, the other thing, though, is if you have two budget offices, you could, you might say, well, that sounds kind of duplicative. Mm -hmm. um, they also would, it's very easy to envision a future where the Senate says, oh, I think this bill that the lieutenant governor is championing is going to cost, you know, Nothing. not that much money. Right. And the House researchers might say, oh, we actually think that's going to be a very expensive proposal. And then there's sort of this disagreement. I mean, it opens the door to like, what do you do? How do you govern when you can't even agree on the numbers? Right. Like the I'm, facts at hand. Yeah. I mean, so nobody is then independent any longer. Yeah. And so what does the flux in the speaker's office right now mean for any of this? It means basically that, you know, is anybody, f you know, has historically has the speaker been fighting with Dan Patrick to keep this agency afloat? Is the House doing anything? Um, good other questions. Than, other than pushing its money across, which it, you know. Is I mean, they're the talking to the press. They are um, standing up for the agency in the way that they know how. Uh, I think they are not empowered to do a lot right now. I, one question that that a few sources floated to me is like, why don't we as a board, because it's, you know, the LBB is a board, mm -hmm. take an up or down vote on some of these matters. Potentially, if there were some senators who, you know, maybe had different viewpoints from the lieutenant governor, maybe they could do an up or down vote on some of these personnel decisions. Obviously, for years that hasn't happened. Who knows if, if that could happen. Um, the House has traditionally at least in the last four or five years, been the biggest ally of the LBB. I think it's just extreme. It's fair to say that. Mm -hmm. 
without a house speaker and without John Zerwas, who recently retired and was the the you know the house's number one budget writer, um, the LBB is in its most precarious position yet. They mm -hmm. do not have their traditional allies, and so that's why I think all eyes are on Dan Patrick. And there was a lot of kind of gloom and doom at the agency yesterday, from what I understand, when Patrick came out with a statement and basically said, I have no confidence in these number crunchers. And I think most of them are a bunch of unelected liberal bureaucrats. Yeah, I mean, his statement effectively to your story was like, damn straight, that is what I believe. Yeah. Uh, for me, selfishly, he did kind of say, everything in this story is right. Absolutely right. <laughs> Absolutely, Absolutely right. right. Which, yeah. You know, maybe it does. I mean, it's interesting because I do wonder, like, all right, so maybe the Senate or Dan Patrick feels one way for journalists, for state agencies. Like, this is, you know, not to put too fine of a point on it, an extraordinary resource, right? I mean, this is the, again, having to, you know, balance two competing sets of numbers when you're trying to project how much something is going to cost is is really tricky and makes it hard, as you said, for the data to speak for itself. For sure. Particularly, I mean, and beyond, beyond the journalists, like imagine state agencies trying to determine what the cost is going to be of something they're being asked to implement. I, yeah, that's a really good point. And I will say, you know, these voices don't appear in this. It's hard to write about inside baseball in this way. Nobody feels comfortable speaking for attribution. Everybody's afraid of retaliation and everybody, you know, doesn't want to lose their job. But I heard from a lot of folks across state government, not just at the legislature, but at these state agencies saying, if we don't have a functional LBB, it makes our jobs harder. Mm -hmm. um, we depend on these people to provide, you know, a reliable uh, source of information about how stuff costs and how kind of the sausage gets made at the government level. And even state agencies are saying, our job, like our lives, are a lot harder because we can't even get LBB to answer our calls. Right? How do they? Yeah. How do they project anything? Right. Yeah. Uh, well, really great story. Important work. <laughs> Uh, okay, so speaking of the flux in the speaker's office, Cassie, uh, that's the cue for you. Uh, it's been a week since we were last here talking about Bonin's decision to step down at the end of his term. Um, from a timing standpoint, what are the expectations around the speaker's race? Uh, like, when do you anticipate things will really get started? Yeah, um, <coughs> I think everybody in and around the House is kind of entering this phase of what now, what happens next. There's obviously some pretty big questions that have not been answered yet. Uh, one of them, and maybe the biggest one being, what is the speaker going to do with his $3 million that had, he had basically put into this new campaign account to help protect and reelect Republican incumbents? Um, and then the second one, uh, the second question maybe on people's minds is, is the speaker uh, going to actually serve the rest of his term, right? Um, and so, you know, conversations obviously are all still pretty much happening privately. I think there are uh, a number of Republicans who are, are probably eyeing the speaker's gavel, but who don't want to repeat uh, last year's mistake and enter the race too early. Mm. Um, right, because what happened last time around is everybody entered the race too early, and then Dennis Bonin was like the last guy standing who showed up and won the gavel. Right, right, all in, in a matter of days. Yeah, right. right. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, you know, I think conversations are happening with, with GOP stakeholders this week and a number of House Republicans. Uh, essentially trying to answer the question or at least get a conversation started on on what happens next or where do we go from here. And uh, I, I'm not going to make you make predictions, but I'm going to ask what you're hearing. So you said there are two questions, um, and I'll do them in reverse order. Is he going to serve out the rest of his term? What is the sort of prognostication on yeah, you? Yeah, uh, still very unclear. And I think <coughs> that a lot of people are trying to see whether, uh, if at all, uh, 
the issues surrounding the Speaker's office ends up getting any play in these House races, these state House races. I think a lot of people are looking at the HD28 race. Which race is that, reminder? Uh, the Zerwas seat, okay. speaking Special of Zerwas. Election Special week. election. Um, you know, is is uh, the Bonin scandal going to end up getting any sort of play in that race? Are voters going to be uh, using that as some sort of measuring stick for, you know, what's to come in these other potentially tight House races for, for Republicans? And if... Uh, you know, if we get to a certain point where it is determined that the speaker staying in his current role is a liability for Republicans on the ballot, then, uh, you know, maybe that pushes him to end up resigning rather than just announcing a simple retirement. And um, would there have to be then a speaker's race right away or uh, it, it could could it wait until January? Unclear. Uh, the thought out there is that in order for January their... January 2021. Yeah, right, we've got a right, long... January 20, right. Um, there's a couple different, you know... Uh, I guess thoughts out there as to what could necessarily happen to you know what would need to happen. Um, the the most common one that I hear about is that the the governor would need to call this the house back in for a special session, and that there would need to be a motion to essentially vacate the chair. Could you just call the house back? I think you would have to call the legislature back, and then open the can of worms for anything. Right. So that seems like something you would not want to do. Bills on transgender children. Oh my god. Right. Yeah. If Dennis Bonin was responsible for a whole other special session. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. My general read on is Bonin going to resign or retire, or what's happening there is that it's you know still ways out from there being a decision or maybe even a push for him to have to resign. Mm -hmm. Um, Seems like it would be easier to just let it ride. Yeah, maybe one interesting data point here, and I'll hand this off to Cassie, but I mean, one of the questions is, this is a tight election year for Republicans, and does Dennis Bonin become a liability for fundraising? And we saw, you know, through some campaign finance reports that had to be filed because of these special elections next week, that at least some of the biggest groups, um, as far as donations go to GOP candidates, seem to still be backing Bonin or not taking huge issues with him. He got a couple donations from Texans for Lawsuit Reform, which is always a big player in House yeah. races. Well, you need, to, you need to support the Speaker until he's no longer the Speaker. And also, right. Texans for Lawsuit Reform is still probably feeling bad that they got him to take that meeting with Michael Consolvin in the first place. Weren't they the ones who were, like, encouraging that conversation? Uh, that's been floated out there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And, um, and so then what does the what is the makeup of the House, or, what, like, what do the 2020 elections mean for coalition building? Like, will the next Speaker be decided by... Right. You know, could the next speaker be decided by just the Republican Party, or is it going to have to be a coalition of Democrats no matter what? Yeah, um, definitely remains to be seen on that front. Um, I think I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but I don't see how a single Democrat has an incentive to weigh in or commit to supporting a Republican speaker candidate at this point, just because they still have the 2020 elections on the horizon and the the potential, as Edgar mentioned, like to flip the chamber and elect somebody from their own party. Um, but of course, like Republicans are talking about who among their their caucus which they still have a majority of the chamber who could, uh, you know, either serve as an interim leader, whether that's an official or unofficial thing, uh, in the, in terms of fundraising, in terms of getting everybody on the same page for, uh, you know, recruitment, re-election efforts. Um, and then, of course, like, if they do end up retaining the majority, who among them could uh, succeed the current speaker? So... Right. 
<laughs> we'll see. Lots to wait for. All right. Well, that's all the time we have. Thanks to Raise Your Hand Texas, the Hot Luck Festival, Lone Star College, and Austin Parks and Recreation, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Kia, Emma, Edgar, Cassie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Do I have to talk you